0: This is Keech Rainwater, once again with Designated Drummer. I'm your Designated Drummer, as always, and this episode I would really like to talk about drum equipment, one of my favorite subjects in the world, Um, all about having your drums kind of say who you are, your setup being, whether it's like a big setup or a small setup, having the equipment be really fresh and sounding really good and looking really good and nice and shiny and pretty and um, just having it be just really, really professional. And when people walk in the room and see your setup, whether it's an audition or whether it's uh, your gig or whatever it is, even a, even a rehearsal setup, someone should be able to walk in and look at your kit even though it might be like a practice kit or something. I mean, it really needs to kind of state who you are and what kind of player you are. And um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about my first drum kit that I ever had, which was a little bit embarrassing. Uh, I had, when I was about 12 or 13, I saved up about $40. I remember this was back in the mid to late 70s, let's say. Um, I'd saved up about $40 doing odd jobs and things like that. And I finally found some drums that someone was willing to sell me I couldn't really afford like a full drum kit the full thing because that was like way above my what any money I could save or borrow or whatever Um, and at that time I was playing trumpet in the band at school and one of the trombone players in the band had a brother who played drums and he was a really good drummer his brother was a really good drummer. And uh, that trombone player actually ended up being a good friend of mine, and he was actually a good drummer too. He's one of those kind of guys that could play any instrument, banjo. He ended up being a bass player, but he played trombone in the school, and he played bass and drums and banjo and all that. And kind of he kind of got me interested in playing banjo. And uh, we we traveled around the Dallas Fort Worth area a lot in different bands and things like that. Ended up being friends years later, but in school, he had a brother that had some drums and that he was going to sell, and he kind of said it was like a little drum kit or just kind of alluded to it as being a drum set. And what it was, was it was basically a bass drum, and I don't remember what brand they were, Maxitone or something like that, kind of an off-brand. It was a bass drum with no pedal. It was a a snare drum with no snare on the bottom, no head or no snare on the bottom, just had a top head on it. And a floor tom with no legs. So just the drum and the top head. And I don't think it even had a bottom head or a rim or anything. And, um, it just kind of sat on the floor and I actually ended up putting some sticks or something, some drum sticks or something up in where the floor tom legs go to hold it up. It was, it was pretty embarrassing. And I recently was going through some old pictures and I found a picture of that drum kit, like, Back in the, I guess it would have been before I got my first real drum kit, it was in about 1979, 78, something like that. I still had those drums and I was still practicing them and it was a pretty embarrassing setup. Uh, Didn't have any cymbals. I I managed to get a hi-hat cymbal from my mom for Christmas one year, so I had a hi-hat and um, it just kind of grew from there until finally when I was in high school, I got a job. It was at a little shoe store, and I was able to put enough money together to buy like an actual drum kit, like a full drum kit with the pedal and with cymbals and the toms and everything. Somebody was selling a full drum kit, and so I bought it. And that ended up being a kit for a little while. And then uh, I ended up buying my first real professional drum kit, which was a Rogers, my Blue Rogers. If anybody, if any Canyon fans are out there that used to come and watch Canyon all the time, or had seen Canyon in the, in the past, from the beginning all the way to the end of Canyon. I was there for about five years with that band. I played my Blue Rogers and kind of got to be known for the, you know, people ask me to this day, you still got those Blue Rogers? And the answer is yes, I still have my Blue Rogers, which I bought in high school. My senior year in high school, I bought this set of Blue Rogers drums from a music store. They were. It was $1,050, I remember. And I had saved up some money and also borrowed a little bit from my mom, and I just really wanted this kit. And it was one of those double bass with, uh, I think it had five toms. I was really into Rush at the time, Neil Peart and Rush, and that was the thing in like 1981 when I was graduating from high school. The um, Moving Pictures album was huge with like tom sawyer and all that stuff and everybody i think everybody i knew wanted to be neil pert neil peart and uh wanted the big kit and that's what you did back then if you were in rock and roll you had like a bunch of toms and two bass drums and you just had all these drums and um you know the the good thing that i really liked about that kit about that rogers kit is um I did play the double bass setup for a while and played some rock and roll and things like that, but I just sort of gravitated toward country because I think it was easier to get a gig or it was easier to make a living, let's say, in country back then because you could be, you could play on weekends or you could play full time or whatever, and you could make a little bit of money. In rock and roll back then, you either had to be you had to have the record deal and the studio the money for the studio or a rich a rich parent or something. You had to have that going. There wasn't a lot of places you could play for money back then. You had to either play for free or play parties or something like that. You had to be really, really good. And you almost had to be good enough to like get a record deal. Whereas you in country in country music back then you could be you could be okay. You could you could do good enough to play clubs and things like that and actually make a living making music, you know, um, back then. So I, for some, I just kind of, I guess it was just easier to get a country gig and I had a few offers and I took some country gigs and didn't need the double bass kit with all the toms and everything. It was just ridiculous because what I learned really quick was, is when you have, uh, two bass drums, let's just start with the bass drums. Like, let's just talk about that. If, when you have two bass drums, you, when you think about the logistics of that, that I learned the hard way really quickly, was that you had to have another case to put it in, to travel in, which is a huge, big thing to put the kick drum in, and the lid and the strap and all that stuff. And you also, um, to the mix, you add another bass drum pedal, which is another $150, $200 or whatever for a good one. So now you have two of those. You have to have um, another head for that drum that you have to change every few months or so. And then you have to have another microphone for that, you know. If you know, hopefully you have a sound man that has mics and stuff like that. But if you don't, if you're if you're footing the bill for your own microphones, which I did back then, because not a lot of places we played had a lot of microphones, I bought my own mics and had my own mic stands and everything, and I tried to make it easy on most of the sound man, uh that I was playing for, playing with. So you had to have another microphone, you had to have another cable you had to have another channel on the board, you had to have another channel in the snake and all that stuff. It just goes on and on and on, just adding one extra kick drum. So by taking away one kick drum, you're alleviating hundreds and hundreds of dollars of things that upkeep, things that you have to buy like drum heads and things like that, and supplying the microphone and all this stuff. So by just having one kick drum and all that, just so you could have two drums to go or whatever you do with the two drums. I found out really easily that you could do a lot of the same coolness and a lot of the same licks and things like that with just one bass drum. It was a lot easier to haul around and and pack up at the end of the night and buy things for and all that. So, But what I learned really cool about that Rogers kit was that you I, I took that kit and I— split it into two different kits. So I had at home, I had a practice kit all the time set up, I had a kick drum, a couple of toms, uh, an an extra snare, that kind of thing, and some hardware and things like that. And um, I think what I did was I took one of the lower toms and made a floor tom out of it. So I could practice with that. And I took the floor tom, the actual floor tom out on the road so I had a road kit that was a Rogers my Blue Rogers and I had a practice kit at home that was Blue Rogers. And I had enough drums with the two bass drums and all those toms and everything to to facilitate two drum kits, two small smaller drum kits, and it was it was awesome. I really found the use in having a lot of drums like that just so that I could have two separate kits. It was nice. Um and you know, I was listening recently to Kenny arnoffs I say Arnoff, I think he pronounces it Aronoff, Kenny Aronoff, the drummer that had played with John Cougar Mellencamp back in the uh, days, and he plays with everybody now, Um, but he was talking a little bit about his whole journey with auditioning for and playing for John Cougar Mellencamp back in the day when John was looking for a drummer. And Kenny Aronoff went and auditioned, and he had the, all the drums, you know, double bass and the, all the toms and everything because he would he had just come off of playing jazz fusion in the mid to late 70s. It was a big thing, and he was really into the jazz fusion. He thought, well, no, I'll really impress this band and this guy John Cougar if I bring all these drums in and everything. Well, John Cougar was not impressed at all. He thought that was a little overkill. And I think uh, Kenny Aronoff said something about that John Cougar had – you know, listen to him play for a little bit. And then he just walked upstairs, didn't say a word to him. And Kenny Aronoff was kind of like, well, did he not like me or what's the thing? And so the word came down that he said that he thought he had too many drums and they he kind of overplayed him. He was trying too hard to impress everybody with his huge drum kit and all these drums and all the licks that he could play and everything. When really all John Cougar wanted was a good, solid backbeat a good drummer that could, that could fit the songs that he was trying to do, and that, you know, flashy when he needed to be flashy, but, but just meat and potatoes when it came to it, you know, when it came down to playing the groove, and so Kenny Aronoff learned the hard way that you don't have to have a billion drums set up to impress people, but what I will say is whatever drums you have as a, if you want, if you're interested in being a professional and you want to impress people, like, in in an audition or something like that or you're playing a gig and you want people to come out and see you play and you want them to be impressed by your drum kit or whatever I would say the best thing you can do is just to get really good quality drums and I know this goes without saying but I will I will restate this that it's good to have good quality drums um, a good brand and I'll mention some of my favorite brands in a minute just a good a good professional brand of drums good cymbals that are clean well placed and it just looks really pro when you look up there at that kit the person looking at that like when you're just walking by without the band even being uh there just just an empty stage with the drum set up those drums should speak to people those drums should say something just the kit all by itself it's just sitting there poised and waiting to be played and what are people going to think when they see that drum kit? Are they going to look at it and think like, oh my God, what? who's that guy? Is he like, you know, 90 years old? Did he did he drag that kit out of the basement somewhere or get it at a pawn shop? I don't even know what brand those drums are. Look at those old heads. Those cymbals look like, they look like I made them. But anyway, so you really want to have a good pro kit and set up really nice. And I, I will say, I remember... Back in the day, I was auditioning for a band. I was and I had already played, I'd already been playing around for a few years. I really wanted this gig. It was a it was just a cover band in Dallas, and I was in between gigs at the time. And I really wanted this gig. And um, they had played some songs that had some reggae in it or something like that. And I remember I didn't have a timbali, which is something you would play kind of in reggae, kind of a like timbalic thing, which is a, a high-pitched it's sort of like a snare drum with no bottom head. And you hit it really hard, and it's kind of a ringy, tight um, drum that they use a lot in reggae. And they had some of that stuff in there. I didn't really have a timbali, so I took a snare drum, and I tried to mount it on a sort of like a cymbal stand mount with a screw. And I, it was just kind of yankity jankety, you know, the best I could describe it. I didn't really have it worked out yet of how I was going to mount that thing. And the day came for the audition, and I thought, well, I'll just kind of figure it out. I'll just set it up. I'll figure it out when I get there. And i never forget setting up my drum kit. And, of course, the, the band was kind of looking at me. They were, they were judging me. I was setting up the drums. They wanted to know, I, the, I didn't realize this at the time, that they were going to really judge me by my kit. I just thought they wanted to hear me play, like how I could play. And I could really play good. You know, I was, impre- I was, I was impressed with myself at the time. <laughs> I thought I could play pretty good. And uh, I was ready to impress them with my playing. But what they were really looking at was my kit you know, what's this thing going to look like when we're on stage playing in a club or something? They wanted to know that. And I didn't really realize they were really scrutinizing as watching me very closely as I was setting up my kit. And when I came to that Timbali, when I was setting up that Timbali, they were looking at me and tilting their head like, what's that? What? What? What's that going to, what is, is that a thing? Is that actually going to stay there? <laughs> I mean, I remember it was just kind of like moving around a little bit and it wasn't really tight. It was kind of loose and it was kind of just hanging there. And I honestly, I just didn't put enough thought into it. And it was kind of embarrassing. I ended up not playing it. It just kind of sat there. And um, anyway, we, we played some songs and things like that. And I ended up not getting that gig because it just, I just think that they weren't sure about me and my kit. And if if the rest of, you know, if if, if my kit was kind of yankily, yankly jankily looking, then maybe my playing might have been too so they weren't really sure about that. I didn't get the gig. Um, I learned a lesson. Make sure your equipment is top-notch, especially on an audition. When you're going into an audition, you want to, if it's your kit, now a lot of times when you audition, it's not your kit. It's somebody, it's like a rental kit, or it's somebody else's kit that you're taking turns on, stuff like that. So if that's the case, there's nothing you can do about that, except just play really well. Um, But if it's your kit, you got to make sure it's top-notch and it's really really good equipment good symbols good sound and that you can play it well that you that you command you command that kit i mean you command it to do what you want it to do you play dynamically and you 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 own that kit i mean you play it well just like it was part of your body and um, that's what they want they want somebody that's confident and solid and and is a professional and they want to see that you know what you're doing so anyway um, I will say that uh, you got to make sure and have some really good equipment. And I, I'll say that my favorite brands, I'll i will list them in the order of like how well I like them down to, you know, whether I, you know, I'll start with the be- the best ones and go down, in my opinion, that is. Um, so my favorite brands are Yamaha. I like Yamaha the best, Studi- especially my studio kit that I play sessions on. And that's Yamaha Recording Series, kind of a vintage mid-80s, early to mid-80s. I believe Yamaha recording series, um, and then the next is DW. I really love DW, especially live. DWs are really solid, and their hardware. Oh gosh, their hardware, the cymbal stands, the snare stands, everything is so amazing. They've really, really got that going on. But matter of fact, with my Yamaha kit that I play in the studio, I think I play mostly DW hardware and some Apex hardware, but mostly DW hardware, and live on stage I play DW hardware, even though the kit that I play live on stage is a mix between Yamaha and Mapex. I call it Yamapex. And it's a custom-painted kit that I compiled of my favorite drums from two separate kits, that's what I play live. And it's painted in sort of a steampunk style. And we get a a lot of attention everywhere we go with that kit because it just looks really good. It's been painted, -painted, hand-painted, airbrushed to look like steampunk so it's like gears and pipes and gauges and things like that it looks like some kind of machine or something and the guy that painted them added some little rips and tears and things in there so it looks like you're tearing the metal open and there's gears inside and you're seeing the gears turning and stuff like that it's really really cool we get a lot of attention with that and uh, people really like it Ludwig would be my next, well, actually up a little bit from that, Mapex, of course, I already mentioned that, but so it goes from Yamaha to DW to Mapex, I used to endorse Mapex years ago, and they were so good to me, I've, I still have several Mapex kits that I still play, and I still like part that's on my kit now, and some that I play um, at home, and some that I've collected, and some snares and things like that, love Mapex, and uh, so the next down is Ludwig. I love Ludwig. I have an old Ludwig jelly bean kit, which is the clear acrylic drums that, like, you would have heard John Bonham play or something like that back in the '70s. The really, really bouncy, bongy drums. I mean, they just sound so good. They just sound so retro, and um, love that sound. And one of my favorite snare drums is the the clear. I guess it's a VistaLite Ludwig snare. I love that thing, and I've played it in the studio many, many times, uh, even recently. Um, my next one would be Gretsch. I really love Gretsch. I actually have a Gretsch kit that I bought for up in Canada, so if I had some sessions to do up there, then I would have a Gretsch kit up there, and I bought it in Canada, and it stayed in Canada uh, for a while, and I, I brought it back recently, but um, I went, since COVID went, uh, happened, I wasn't able to do very many sessions up there, so I brought it back here great older Gretsch kit, kind of like what Phil Collins uh, uh, played all those years and probably still plays. I think he's still playing a little bit. Um, Tama is is a great, great um, set of drums. Tama makes some great drums. Um, Back in the day, I remember in the 80s, Tama was like Tama and Sonar and those those companies, those were like the big rock and roll drums. And I think that uh, Stuart Copeland with The Police... Is a Tama guy. He, the first time he heard Tama drums, he was just in love with the sound, the, the the responsiveness that Tama has, that Tama, the kit that he played has, and he tunes them real tight and plays them really well. And uh, Pearl, I used to have a Pearl kit years ago. Pearl is really good, but I would say Pearl is probably best for playing live or a good practice kit or something like that. Not to say that Pearl drums don't make good uh, studio kits. They probably have a good um, studio. Um, you know, a good um, version of their drums that's for playing in the studio. But um, I prefer the Yamaha because Yamaha recording series, they've just done everything they can to make those things nice and clean sounding without any rattles or just if you've ever taken a Yamaha recording series drum apart, it's, it's amazing. The internal structure, there's like little rubber grommets and stuff everywhere. It's really, really nice, nice and quiet. You're never going to get a squeak or a rattle out of a Yamaha recording drum. So next I'll talk about cymbals. My favorite cymbals are Zildjian, and I've had a Zildjian endorsement deal for over 20 years, and they just recently sent me a plaque recently on saying, you know, congratulations for being a Zildjian endorser for 20 years, and I thought, wow, they're sending me a plaque? I should send them a plaque. It's been great. They've been so good to me, all these years. Anytime I needed, I had cracked cymbals and I needed them, kind of in a hurry because we had a tour coming up. They would overnight them to me. It was just really awesome. They're really super people there. Um, uh, Sabian cymbals, great, great cymbals. I love. I used to play Sabian all the time. Uh, Before I got a Zildjian endorsement, I was a Sabian. I played, I played Sabian a lot. I liked them. I kind of played a mix of Zildjian and Sabian. Um, And the next one is Paiste cymbals. I know that Paul Lyme, when he plays sessions, I know. I think he. I don't know if he endorses them or not, but his cymbals were all peisty and I think he was. He was a big. I think his favorites are Paiste cymbals, and I mean, for someone like Paul Lyme, he knows what he's doing, and he's been playing forever. And it could be that maybe in the studio they have a, a sweeter sound or something. Maybe peisty cymbals in the in the studio because he is, you know, primarily a session guy and he's played a billion sessions, and um, you can't argue with that. So, Piesty for the studio, for sure, definitely. Um, Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about drum heads. I used to play Remo drum heads all the time. I mean, pretty much the beginning of my career all the way through, and just recently, I tried some, we had a sound man that said, if you tried Evan's heads, because those are my favorites, he said. So, I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll try some. So, I tried some Evans heads and oh my gosh, they've, they've really come a long way. Evans has come a long way in the, in the past, you know, 10 or 20 years. Um, Now I'm, I'm, I have actually a deal with Evans and um, they are my favorite heads now for sure. Um, Evans heads, especially, I will say, if you ever get a chance to try, if you're a drummer, you get a chance to try the kick drum head called EMAD 2. It's called an EMAD. That's I guess a capital E with an M-A-D, EMAD, and with the 2, like a letter, the, uh, sorry, number 2, EMAD 2. That's my favorite kick drum head. Oh, my gosh, that thing is just so sweet sounding. It's got a good, nice, strong thud to it, but has a nice, um, I don't know, a high-end or something. When you use a wooden beater, it just, it just. oh, my gosh, it's just amazing. Um, and the sticks I use are Promark 5B nylon. And I like the nylon because like when in country, when you're playing ballads and things like that, um, I like to play the ride cymbal. I like to have that that sort of tick, that little bit of attack with the plastic hitting the the cymbal. And in my experience, wooden tips, uh, because I'm a hard player mostly, wooden tips would tend to either chip or wear out or get soft or whatever. Um, They just weren't as durable as the nylon. So I like um, 5B nylon. Another thing I like about the nylon is when I hit a side stick and I hit the side stick, I do it, I don't flip the stick around, I play it normal and it, the nylon tip just gives it a little tiny, tiny bit more weight on the end. So when I hit when I drop that stick down on the side stick it, it uh, makes a really good, really nice sound. Um, but uh yeah, you know um, it's just so great to be, out there making a living playing drums and having a really great kit and being complimented on your playing and all of the, all the time that you spend uh, maintaining your kit, keeping it clean, having a good drum tech that, that knows what they're doing and to set it up every day and make sure everything's all nice and shiny. It's, it's such a pleasure to get out there and make music with a great sounding kit and, um, you know, one of the things that you can do to um, make your your kit really stand out is try to set things up a little bit different. Uh, I have noticed that when I went to go see a band or something play, I would look at the drum kit, and sometimes the drummer would have, say, the, the first two toms turned around backwards or something, and that really uh, caught my attention, and I thought, why why did they do that? And it wasn't anything noticeable right away, but it was just that little bit of difference of their setup was just a little bit different. Or maybe the drummer had the cymbals up really high. And I noticed that back in the day, we always would say, it seemed to me like drummers from New York always had their cymbals up real high. You know, like on the David Letterman show, I believe it was Steve Jordan or somebody that had their cymbals up really, really high. And I noticed a lot of New York guys that had like those cymbals up high. Um, And uh, guys from LA seemed like they had their cymbals Kind of low now. I maybe now in some heavy metal bands, I'm sure they probably had cymbals up higher like that. But I, it just seemed like uh, uh, to me, it seemed like New York guys played their cymbals high, and L.A. guys played their cymbals kind of normal, like flat or lower or something like that. Um, uh, there's probably people out there yelling at me right now saying that's not true, that's not true. But that's just what I remember noticing uh, as I, you know, years and years as I've played drums more and more, and I would see drummers from New York and drummers from LA and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, if you could, if there's something you could do that makes your kit just a little bit different, you know, and like a good example would be also uh, a drummer that has like, remember I mentioned the timbales, having some timbales off to the side or something like that, or some congas or something like that, that just kind of makes it just a little tiny bit different in not only in just the setup, but in your playing, when you do, when you go do a roll across the toms and you have just that one timbali thing that just kind of really throws the sound off just a little bit, you know, and then you do your fill. Not off, I don't mean off, but it just makes your, your fill sound a little bit different. It makes it stand out a little bit more. Make it more interesting. And uh, if you had a kit that was interesting like that and had some kind of inter- interesting setup, like a, uh, what I, one thing I do, on my kit, is I have on my left side, to the left of my hi-hat, I have a little popcorn snare. I call it a popcorn snare, and I believe that's a term for it. It's a small, tiny, little 10-inch snare drum that is tuned really tight, and one of the things that I noticed in a lot of music, in pop music, and in our music, and lots of stuff, a lot of times there's, sometimes there's a little bit of a drum loop or something going on before the main drum kit comes in and even on songs where it there there might be like a guitar strumming or some other kind of intro we change it up for our live show we want some to be some kind of a little beat going on there and so what I do a lot of times is I play a little what would kind of like emulating a drum machine kind of thing like a little uh like a little drum loop or something like that I'll play along with the side snare as the snare, and I'll play it a little softer and kind of like a little, almost like a little drum machine loop type thing. And I'll play that for a couple of measures. And then when that way, when the rest of the drum kit comes in, when I do a big fill coming into with with my normal snare and the toms and all that, there's a difference between that little popcorn snare and the little beat I was playing. And going into like a full-blown chorus, the volume changes a little bit. It's a little bit more um, dynamically, big. it's bigger there. And it's a neat way, it's a really neat way to layer the, the song from what you were doing, which may be a little softer with the music, and then when the chorus comes in or something like that, the or maybe it's an intro thing, and then when the first verse comes in, you play on the regular kit. And it's kind of neat to go back and forth between the popcorn snare and the full snare, I do that on "Amazed" on the song "Amazed." We start out um, in the beginning um, before the drums, the full drum kit comes in. I play a little loop kind of thing just to kind of keep the beat going a little bit, and it sounds kind of more pop, kind of more like a pop version of it a little bit, and it kind of keeps the the, the rhythm going a little bit until before the big fill comes in, before the chorus. So that's kind of cool. So anytime you can do that to change your setup a little bit and make it a little more interesting. For the people, but always keeping it classy and always keeping it everything clean and tuned with fresh heads on there. And, you know, that's another thing is tuning. Um, you can look at a kit and you really don't know what it's going to sound like until you hear it. Like it could, you just never know, you know, but when you look at that kit, you want to, be sort of impressed by how it looks just sitting by itself, like, you know, I wonder what that thing sounds like, and when the drummer comes up there and starts playing it, then you all of a sudden, you realize, oh, he's got it tuned real tight, or or that snare is like super low and fat, sounds really cool, Um, so whichever way you go, you just go fully class, you go full classy with it, and you own that kit, you know, and play it with conviction, you know, play it with like, it's a part of your body, and really get into it, and um, that's one thing you can do to really, uh, you know, make sure that your kit is going to get noticed and that you're going to get noticed as a drummer, as a professional drummer with your equipment setup. Now, if you're a drummer that is just starting out and you, I know money's tight and a lot of times when you're starting out, you don't have a lot of money, but I will say, I will tell you this, if there's any way that you can either borrow or get a loan or whatever, I think you owe it to yourself to go out and get a very good professional, top of the line, really good brand. It, it's an investment in yourself and it's an investment in your career and your future. And I really just, I'm trying to imagine a scenario A, where you have just a pawn shop drum kit, just a, something you had, um, you know, bought from a pawn shop or you threw together or something like that. And scenario B where you're starting out and you're going on auditions and that kind of thing with a really nice kit with really fresh heads, nice, clean cymbals. Everything's tuned to perfection. I, I really, honestly, I think that just goes without saying that you're going to get more gigs. You're going to play better. Um, you're going to sound better. And I think that the band that you are auditioning for, they're going to look at that and say, like, oh, okay, well, yeah, he's he's got the good guns. He's got the big, he's bringing out the big guns. He's got the good stuff, good equipment. I think of it as like also if it was a guitar player or something auditioning for a band and they came out with an old guitar that was out of tune and it had old strings on it, stuff like that. That guy's probably not going to get that gig. But if he shows up with a really nice, well-tuned guitar, well-maintained, and he has good, nice new pedals and a a nice amp, and his sound is nice and clean and he plays it well, obviously he's going to get the gig. Um, Other than that, you know, just... um, Just uh, figure out what your setup is. And and I'll I'll say this too about the setup, since that's what we're talking about today, is to make sure that you're comfortable at that set. You know, you you don't want to be where you are sitting super low and you're having a hard time reaching the drums or if they're far away. It takes a a lot of... I've spent many, many hours trying to figure out what my setup is going to be if I want to change it, like maybe I'm having a little trouble, the floor tom is a little too low, raise it up, maybe tilt it a little bit, and just just honing in on what is most comfortable on this kit. Should I raise the hi-hat up a little more? Would that give me more room for my left hand to hit the snare? Should I lower the snare just a tad, or should I raise the snare up and bring it it closer to me? Um, Is the first tom too far away? You know, is it close enough? Is it tilted just right? All that stuff goes into play, to you being comfortable. It's almost like driving a car. Before you drive a car, you want to make sure the seat's right. You want to make sure the mirror is set and that you know you know where the pedals are and everything is where it needs to be. Your seat belts on, all that stuff. Same thing with playing a drum kit. Um, you just want to make sure that you're comfortable at it and your playing will be better and it will show. It will show in your audition or in your gig or whatever. Um, so that is definitely, I'll say, one of the greatest things that you can do to up your game as far as your your equipment goes. Okay, so the next thing I'm going to talk about when we talk about equipment is the drum kit, the noise coming from the drum kit. Um, you want to make sure if you're starting out or if you're a pro or whatever, um there's going to be all kinds of little noises and things that come from your kit. That's just kind of natural toms that click together and they don't quite, they rub together or something like that. I remember we were, we were playing in the studio one time and there was a, when I hit the last note, the cymbals were ringing and that kind of thing. And one of the guys, one of the session guys, I think it was a played acoustic guitar or something, said something like, what's that sound at the end of the song? What is that? and we listened to it, and we oscillated. we couldn't figure out what it was, and what it was, was a symbol was touching, barely touching another symbol, or something like that, so when they were ringing at the end of the song, they were kind of going, shh, shh, shh. they were kind of rock, vibrating together, and it made this weird pulsing sound, so I had to go back in and replay that again, because my mistake, there were some things touching, so you have to really make sure that your drum kit is not making any weird noises. And I heard a story a long time ago, um, about that, um, that Hal Blaine was about to do a session with, I don't remember who it was. I want to say it was, um, I think it was Frank Sinatra. He was going to do a session with Frank Sinatra and, um, he was going to have to do this session, and he had heard that Frank Sinatra does not like to do second takes or anything like that. He's kind of like to just do it, get it done, one take, let's get out of there, you know, do the job and go. He didn't like to have to do a second, let's do it again, and let's do it again, because of something, well, we heard a weird noise or something, so Hal Blaine wanted to make sure, double sure, that he didn't have any noises coming from his kit, because sometimes a a screw would turn, or something would rattle, or something like that, So he went in and had a guy, I think it was like an engineer or something, he had him go in and put rubber washers underneath every screw in the whole kit and had him go through the whole kit and make sure there wasn't any noises that squeaks or anything that were going to happen with this kit. Because his thinking was, I don't want to be the reason why Frank Sinatra has to do another take of the song and he's going to get angry. And that's just the kind of drummer Hal Blaine was. He was just this problem solver. And so he thought, well, I'm going to do everything I can. This is kind of a historic gig coming up to, to play with the, you know, the legend. Um, so I want to make sure that I don't have any squeaks or weird noises or anything. So he went and paid a guy to make sure that his kit was completely noise-free. And I will say that I've had... In the past, I've had things like toms, the rims clicking together sometimes. They're a little bit too close, and when you play them, they kind of move a little bit. And these weird sounds, go tuk-tuk-tuk, you know, where the thing. So I'll take a piece of tape and a a cymbal felt and put it between the toms so that if they do bang together, it's quiet, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, noises, just just little noises and things like that, cymbals making noise and stuff like that. Um, You have to kind of go through your kit and make sure that there are no weird noises or anything like that. And um, another thing I'll say as far as noises go is uh, that I have kind of like perfected is during the show when someone's talking or whatever, and you put your sticks down on the rim, and, and I teach my students this sometimes, it's, it's good to practice setting your sticks down very, very quietly because it does make a sound. There's a big microphone right there on your snare drum, Where you set your sticks down, and that's usually where everybody sets their sticks, either that or on the floor tom. And when you set your sticks down, they kind of make a kind of sound, you know. So you want to make sure that uh, you don't make any sound. So I have perfected the skill of setting very carefully the sticks down, the butt first, and then laying them down very quietly on the rim where they don't make any noise at all. And uh, no one, you know, looks back there and goes, What was that? You know, noises where there don't need to be noises. I will say that, Um, yeah, just stuff like that, just common sense, but uh, you're going to run into problems where there are things that squeak, and things that, you know, a, a bass drum pedal that's squeaky, I used to have one that years ago, I don't even remember what brand it was, but it was kind of one of my first bass drum pedals, and it was a squeaky son of a gun, and I couldn't wait to get a brand new kick drum pedal, newly designed with bearings and all that stuff. That did not squeak. Oh, I hated that thing squeaking like that. It kind of added this extra noise that nobody liked. So, so yeah, you just got to make sure that uh, everything's nice and quiet and looks good and sounds good and all that. Now, so the next thing I want to talk about is drum cases. We're talking about equipment. We're talking about setup and stuff like that. So when I first uh, started playing, I had my Blue Rogers and I was in high school. I was just out of out of high school, actually, going on auditions and. I got my first gig with, I passed the audition and I was in this band and we played a lot locally around the Dallas area, played a few clubs and things like that. And I would just put my drums in my little car, load everything up in there. and They just barely fit in my car and um, would drive to the gig, set them up, that kind of thing. And I had no drum cases at all to put them in. I just put them in my car and I didn't give it a second thought. I thought, well, I'm always going to just be, I don't really have any room in my car to put cases, even if I did have cases. So I never even thought about it really. Um, and then the band I was playing in at the time said, okay, we've got a gig in, it was, uh, Lexington, Kentucky. We were living, we were living in Dallas, Texas at the time. We had a gig in Lexington, Kentucky. So we're going to rent a van and a trailer And we're going to load everything up. So they just told me, they said, so Keach, just, you know, bring your cases and that kind of thing. And we'll load everything up at so-and-so time and we'll hit the road by this time. And I kind of, they, and I remember thinking about my cases. Oh, wow. Cases. Yeah. Yeah. And I was trying to imagine my drums in this trailer bouncing around with no cases. And I thought, oh no, I can't do that. So I, I took just about, it cost me about all the money I had at the time that I had kind of saved up. I mean, we were just playing small clubs and things like that. So I just was kind of just living from paycheck to paycheck, but I was making a living at playing drums and I was totally happy, but I was buying equipment, snares and sticks and drum heads and things like that, but I did not buy cases. So I had to go and I had to spend pretty much all the money I had on a whole set of cases for my drums. Now, sometimes when you buy a drum kit, it'll come with cases. You know, if you find a a kit that's a used kit, but a nice one, and it's a pro kit from somebody, sometimes they will come with cases. And when I bought my Gretsch kit up in Canada, it act- they actually had cases and I was, I was impressed. But usually when you go into a music store and you buy a drum kit, they don't come with the cases. They don't come with cases and you have to figure out what your case situation is going to be. And there's a lot of options out there. You can get soft cases that zip zip closed, and those are fine, but they they tend to get beat up out on the road a lot. So the best cases that I've seen, I don't really know the brand, but they're those hard plastic cases that um, have the belt that goes over the top. It's a big thick belt that goes over the top of the the lid that closes. You put the lid over the top of the case after the drum's in there, and and it closes, and it clicks shut. Those are the best kind. So yeah, you got to make sure you have some really good cases to keep everything nice and safe out there on the road because they will get beat up out there. And better to get a case beat up, a plastic case beat up, than your, you know, thousands of dollars of drum equipment, you know, getting rubbing against each other and getting all banged up and beat up. So that is definitely a thing. So the next thing I'll talk about a little bit is electronics. Um, I, I'm, I know that a lot of gigs... Aren't electronic music gigs and that kind of thing? And I'm not saying you should go out and buy, uh, you know, like a synthesizer or a big, you know, big drum machine thing or anything like that. But I will say that a lot of times, uh, well, for one thing, you have to have a click track. You need to be able to play to a click track. And it's better to have your own created click track that that is pleasing to the ear and that's percussive and has some subdivisions in there and that's pleasing to listen to and maybe even pleasing for the rest of the band to listen to if that's the case. If you're playing and the band wants a click track, um, better you to supply the click track than somebody else that has some computerized thing that's like blip, 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 blip that's terrible to listen to and it hurts your ears and it's really terrible. Uh, So I would say definitely, uh, to invest as part of your setup, invest in some kind of, uh, drum pads or something that you can generate, click track. You can, um, if you're in the studio playing, uh, a song or recording a song, sometimes they may want kind of like a little drum loop in the beginning of the song to bring in the music and that kind of thing. And sometimes, uh, you're, if you create a good enough click track that's interesting and, and easy to listen to, they, that actually could end up being part of the song. They could record that and use it as not only the click track, but they could also use it in the song too, like percussion. I know Paul Lime does that all the time when he plays sessions. He has a, a kind of a drum composer there that's like a, a, a drum machine with some pads, and they have they uh, can like a little computer that quantizes it. And he can sit there and play a rhythm with all these different... He's got all this whole library of percussion sounds that he could just call up in any any one of them. And he can perform it right there with his pads and create kind of a little loop thing. And then seconds later, he can just put it on play, loop, whatever, and then turn right around. He has it right to the left of his kit. He can turn right around and start playing his live kit, his kit, his studio kit, along with that. And I was so impressed to see him do that and he did it as if that drum machine loop thing were a part of his body like he was actually playing that he played the kit to that thing that he played he played the little drum machine part first and then set it to loop and it was quantized and all that and then he turned right around and then just kind of started playing his kit and he played it so well to that drum machine it sounded like sort of one thing it sounded like that drum machine was part of his body that he was playing And I can't really describe the feeling, but it all sounded like one thing. It all sounded like one player playing. Like he had three or four extra hands that was playing this kit. It was so well integrated. And because he's been doing that for so long, right? And he's just got that groove. And man, it just, it just can't, you can't help it, but it to help the groove and maybe fill in the empty spaces better than having like a little loop or something playing. Now a lot of gigs and a lot of drummers don't like playing to click and that's fine. Uh, some bands, uh, I know Phil Vassar and his, uh, had his drummer on, um, a a while back on my podcast. And, uh, he was saying that they don't use a click at all and they just, they play live. They just call the songs and they play them and that's just not their thing. And that's fine. That's all good. But there are certain ones. Um, Shania Twain's drummer. I, um, talked to him and he said everything's click everything's on a grid and you have to be able to play along with that click as if you were playing like you weren't playing to a click playing as if you're just making it up on the top of your head and that's what I kind of do when I'm playing as I listen to a click track I try to play the drums not like a drum machine so much but like I'm playing like I'm just making it up at the top of my head and I'm listening to the click and it's kind of in the back of my head and I'm just following it and, and I'm just, I'm just, I'm not really consciously listening to that click track, but it's just in the back of my mind and it's just keeping me keep steady time. And I, I may go a little ahead of it. I may go a little behind it, but it always stay with it. I know I don't get lost from it. I have it enough in my ear monitors that I can stay with it and I don't lose it. But mentally it's kind of just in the background of what I'm listening to and what I'm thinking. I'm not really thinking about it. So I think just to have some kind of little drum machine kind of composer or a little set of pads or something. They're not really all that expensive these days. There's a lot of companies that have them um, that have these little drum composer kind of things that you can tap with your fingers. And it will quantize. Garage band is a great thing uh, to use if you if you can have it on stage, have a little computer set up or something. I see a lot of drummers that use that. And they'll have little... Um, Click track that they have set up and some pads or something like that and definitely in the studio You want to be able to have something that you can tap out some kind of little Quantized rhythm or something like that uh, For when they may just want either a click track or some kind of intro, so that's always super good to have Well, I think that's just about it Um, I've covered everything I can think of as far as equipment drum equipment brands of equipment and the setup, and what your drum kit looks like all by itself up there, just begging to be played, and the kind of impact it has on people that might be looking at an empty stage. And I I like to say that um, nothing against guitars or guitar players or anything like that, but when you look at, say, a guitar amp, it's sitting there, and a guitar on a stand or whatever, pedals, it doesn't really say anything to you like a drum kit does but when you walk in and you see a, a stage and you see the setup and you see microphones and you see maybe a keyboard when you look at that drum kit it's saying something to you it's saying kind of it's kind of letting you know what you're in for if it's a big huge setup with lights shining down on it and you know you you know you're going to be in for a good show if it's if it's an older set, you know that's like uh, Max Weinberg would be playing with Bruce Springsteen, that uh, with the, just the like four-piece kit kind of thing. But if they're brand new, nice shiny drums, and they you look like they're tuned well, and you, brand new cymbals, you just know you're in for a good show. You know that there's going to be a pro back there playing, and uh, I just think there's nothing like that. And I remember when I was young, going in, and anytime. That I would get around uh, a live drum kit, like real drums. My heart would beat a little faster. My eyes would open up a little wider. And there was just something about those drums, about that drum setup sitting there all by itself. And my mom used to, my mom used to be a performer. She played guitar and sang in these little clubs around the Dallas area when I was growing up. And uh, she did a little solo act. And um, sometimes I would go in the club. And there would be some kind of on the other side of the club that would be sort of a band set, a larger stage setup. And I would get to see real drums. And I got—I was asked her if I could go over there and look at them. And she's like, Yeah, just don't touch anything. And I would go and look at these drums. And of course, I was just like so impressed with how the setup was and how many cymbals they had and all that. It just looked, it just, gosh, it just impressed me so much to see a drum kit set up there, just like waiting to be played. And uh, so now I look up there at my kit set up, and I hope that other people would look at it and see it and think like, man, look at those drums. They're just so cool looking, man. I just can't wait to hear this band. So I hope that whatever level you're at in your playing career, that you'll get some really good equipment, take good care of it, get some good cases, and get out there and play it and practice and be a great drummer, great entertainer, and just rock those people just want to say thank you so much for listening and this is Keach Rainwater with Designated Drummer and we will see you next time.